Welcome back to The Pulse. My name is Adam Armstrong. I'm the head of the Digital Narrative Manipulation Program at the CABC, the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change. Today, I'm talking to Kaylin Robertson, a filmmaker from London. Thank you so much for joining us, Kaylin. Thanks so much for having me and for having this conversation. Thanks for making the time. So we are going to do three episodes with you. And this, the first one, we're going to be talking about your role in the film Farmlands. Can you just, for the listeners who haven't heard of Farmlands, give them a two-minute summary about what Farmlands is and who made it and how it got made? So Farmlands is a documentary about the farm murders in South Africa. It was released in 2018 before Tucker and Trump were talking about it. It was kind of a topic that was not really discussed that much on like right-wing channels online. It was um, huge. It got millions of views on YouTube, the most viewed video about the farm murders to date, and uh, about 20 million views on Facebook, accounting for, I think, a few particular clips of it, accounted for the highest viewed videos on Lauren Southern's channel. She's a far-right filmmaker based in North America. Um, and it led to a huge amount of conversation on the right about the farm murders, about the motivations behind it. And it sort of became the focal sort of starting point of that um, that conversation, that um, catalyst for um, South Africa entering like the, the far right um, vocabulary. <laughs> So when you say South Africa's entered the far, far right vocabulary, what do you mean by that? So pre-2018, I worked as a director for someone called Tommy Robinson, who was sort of one of the biggest far right online figures in the UK. And um, I had obviously operated a lot in that kind of online ecosystem, crossing over with Alex Jones in North America as well. And there were a lot of talking points that were very, very common. And it was like free speech, internet censorship, Islam taking over Europe, terrorism and immigration. It was sort of like five big points. South Africa was never really something that was ever mentioned. It wasn't really something that anyone on the online far right ever really talked about in like a big way or even like right wing media. Um, and so after it came out because of the number of views it got and because of the traction it got obviously because tucker started talking about it a month after we released our thing and lots of kind of u.s senators started talking about it that's when it entered like the main stage and became kind of like a, just a recurring talking point that everyone would bring up on these you know talk shows everyone likes to interview each other on the far right non-stop like on dave rubin show and everything and it just constantly started being brought up there and it was just something that you would hear about all the time past that year. So your role was you produced the film? So produced and directed by my partner and I. Um, my partner's name is George. Um, and we went to South Africa with Lauren on a tiny budget. I'll give her so much credit for the fact, not credit, that doesn't sound great. I'll give her the only far right person that I worked with that actually spent their donation money on making the projects that they promised and not blowing it on like drugs and just mess. So she's, that's the only person that's actually done something like that. So, that, so she went and with a tiny, tiny amount of money, like $5,000 or something uh, with me and George to go and go on the ground and, and film it for two weeks. And then it was brought out about a month after that. Um, 
And we also edited it, did the soundscape, did all of the graphics. So it was just the three of us, me, George, and Lauren. And it's a... I watched it, and it's a high production that It looks like a slick movie. It's well edited, it's well put together. And you did that all on a shoestring budget. Yeah, um, a lot of people sort of... I think because of the way it looked, a lot of people thought that we had massive money behind it, but there really wasn't. Not for that film. There was for future films with lots of different people that I worked with. But with that, it was like we could afford a one-way flight to get there. We paid Simon Roche from St. Landers nothing to just drive us around in a car and like do it all and be our security. So we couldn't afford any of that. And they, um, and then um, we... I think we took like a thousand pounds each or something to edit it a month. I mean, it was, it was tiny, 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 tiny amounts of money, just like costs. Um, just cause we were on, you know, like a, a bit of a crusade with it. Like we, we wanted to make it happen. We wanted to have people hear this information. We wanted to, to get it out there and didn't really care about, about kind of the money aspect to it. Um, which I think surprised a lot of people because the sort of online right at the time was very, um, grif- I mean, it still is. It's all sort of grifters and people desperate just to make a buck and they don't really do anything of it. These sort of fake journalists, Tim Pool, Andy No types. And, um, and everyone was just really surprised that like a really high production value film just got made from, from, from nothing. But um, yeah, it sort of seemed to come out of nowhere for a lot of people. It was also the first documentary in that internet circle like like that that kind of mike cernovich you know infowars media sphere had never really made like legitimate looking documentaries before farmlands came out so i think that's how it had such huge impact as well like no one had seen you know that format done it was all sort of like four minute circle jerk videos interviewing each other or sit down videos you know it was very very mundane so that was the first of its kind, not just on the subject, but also on its format. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about how it got made, but maybe you could just explain quickly, you mentioned this kind of the Mike Cernovich, Alec Jones, Infowars space. Like what were you, it sounds like you were very involved in that space. Yeah. So I was a director for Tommy Robinson before I had met Lauren. But at the very, very beginning, I was a correspondent on camera for Rebel Media, but also produced videos for Rebel, directed videos for Rebel with various other people. So I was, I was in that world for, for a while um, and knew it very well. So um, understood how to navigate it and kind of what it needed. And I was super, super radical at the time. I felt like that was, you know, that world was the only way to um, wake people up to what was going on, to, you know, Islamic immigration that would take over Europe and kill all the gay people and kill all the women and put them in burqas. And it felt like very, you know, because of YouTube algorithms, we were all kind of radical and we were already radicalized at the time. We were really in this ecosystem and kind of felt like these, you know, on the ground warriors to go and highlight these issues. Um, and yeah, so, so that's why we did it on like a tiny, tiny shoestring. That's why we just threw everything we had at it because we were fully dedicated you know, that's why we called up Simon and called up these people because we were like, look, we can't afford security. We can't afford to do it like mainstream media do it or the grift right do it where they'll just turn up and stay in five star hotels and get, you know, the finest whatever. We just want people to see it. So, um, yeah, so it was only filmed in like 10 days. It was a very, very, very short project, like literally landed in Johannesburg, got a flight to Blomfontein. Simon picked us up. We were staying in like his house and his friend's houses and like eating just like anything from like 7-Eleven and stuff. It was just very, 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 um, like, 
hand to mouth, but it, we, we decided halfway through filming when we were driving through Port Elizabeth that we needed a little bit more money because we literally like couldn't even afford the flights home or whatever it was. So we were just dropping these little clips before the documentary came out. So there was a scene for, called, um, kind of what it's called, but it's a woman called Janine who lost her husband in a farm murder. And we, that was really emotional, really sad. So we filmed that and put that segment out. Um, and that kind of had a link to donations at the end. And then people would then donate to sort of try and get it finished. And that kind of got the project rolling to get it done. And that was something that hadn't really been done before as well. Like crowdfunding for a big thing and then putting out snippets as you were making it. Um, and that was kind of like something that became very successful that lots of other people started to do online. Um, but at that point, we hadn't really put anything out that was disinformation, really. It was very early stages. It was, we hear something bad's happening in South Africa. There's people being murdered and we're going to go and investigate it. And the first few videos that came out were very, very like, look, this woman's been affected by it. It's really sad. We're just beginning this story. We don't really know what's going on. And the disinformation and the sort of the stuff that became very sketchy and and kind of off track to reality wasn't until later and wasn't until it sort of started to form a bit more and conclude. Um, so that was just the, the process so far. How did you get the idea to make this movie? Like, where did the project idea come from? It was actually Lauren's idea. We, uh, as much as George and I like to take credit for most of the stuff that we did with working with all these different people, not like to take credit, but obviously did take credit because we were sort of writing the scripts for everyone and, and come up with a lot of the ideas. Lauren just felt completely suddenly when we were, I think it was January 1st, 2018, we went to see the London fireworks together, all three of us. And we weren't there, you know, she was in London to film some like fun stunts on the street and to like interview people outside a mosque and to go to like left-wing feminist marches and ask them women's rights and Islam and stuff like that. Just like trolling people. Um, and we had no intention of doing a documentary. So we went to London fireworks, we were looking up and we just felt like we were going to take over the world. We were like, we're going to finally make this work. We're going to make this right. We're going to wake everyone up to our thing. It was like this very cinematic moment. And we were like looking at fireworks. And we were like, let's make a movie. And she was like, what should we do it about? We all wanted to make a movie. We thought it'd be really cool. We thought we'd do it about London and the heightened security and how everyone's on edge because of all the terrorism that had happened. And then we were like, no, that's too easy. And then she just said that she heard all this stuff from like rumors and from kind of friends more on the far, the fringes of the far right, the kind of Richard Spencer types that we were kind of talking to at the time, that South Africa was heating up or something bad was happening there because the only people that were talking about South Africa at that time were extremely fringe tiny people like like Richard Spencer like uh the Rene American Renaissance Jared Taylor those kind of really kind of fringe neo-nazi types and we just thought let's take a subject that no one else I guess she said let's take something that no one else has talked about before and we'll kind of invent that as like a new a new topic and also like wake up the world about it so that's how it came about I guess it was the idea that we wanted to be the first. And we went and filmed it literally five days later. Like we booked flights the next morning, January 2nd. So it was so last minute and so unplanned. And you, you didn't have budget to finish it when you started it? We didn't have the budget to edit it. We didn't really have like the budget to even get home, really. We didn't have the budget to... We didn't even have the computing power to edit it. Like, we didn't even know how we were going to hide... Because we had, like, MacBook Airs, like, that wouldn't hold a project file that was 50 minutes long with, like, terabytes of footage. So we had no idea how we were going to do that. But Lauren was very, like... I mean, we were all were. We were very, like, we'll just make it work. We'll just go out and just 
throw ourselves into something and we have the truth on our side and that's all that we need. Again, we were on like a crusade. So we were like, we'll just make it work and like trust, trust the plan, whatever. And I guess that's what ended up happening. So. Yeah, it's amazing listening to you. It's like a really, I can hear how like brave you were and how committed you were to getting this project done. As much as it was something that was, I would say, damaging to society and something that I can't sit back and say that I'm proud of now and, and any of those things. At the time, as someone who was fully involved with it and fully believed in it, it, was, it felt like a heroic thing. It felt like everyone else was grifting. Everyone else was spending their money on fine dining and five-star hotels and all of this stuff. And we were like out there on the ground making it happen on a shoestring and also doing something that no one had done before, starting a conversation about something that hadn't been mainstream and making a movie. Like it was, it was just very, very new. Um, whereas now there's documentaries on the right, you know, going out all the time because, because of that, I guess, because it was kind of very, very successful. Yeah. For the listeners who haven't seen it, can you maybe just summarize the plot um, or explain the kind of the information that you were trying to convey at the time that you made the film. What did you want people to take from that movie? Yeah, so so before that as well, what you were saying about you, like the other side baking movie, yes, they should. We One thing we realized just slightly before doing this was that four-minute videos are great. Four-minute videos have a lot of engagement and make a lot of, you know, attention. But actually, documentaries are the things that change public perception and change culture more than any other format on Earth, we believed. Michael Moore's super, uh, what, not Michael Moore, Michael, Michael Moore's movies about politics shifted opinion about Flint, super sized me, changed the entire landscape of the fast food industry and how people perceive McDonald's, uh, the Blackfish documentary on Netflix, changed the SeaWorld industry. Like the things that actually have led to change since the 2000s have been documentaries. They haven't been news or anchors or four minute videos. They've been documentaries. And we felt like that was the way that we would do it. Um, which probably has ended up being true because that, that had more influence than anything else. But so, so you were asking what the intention was and, and what we wanted people to do. We, we had, on January 2nd, we chased up some sources and we were like, okay, let's investigate what's going on in South Africa. Let's see what's actually happening. Because every time on the far right, you hear all these stories, there's a grooming gang over here or there's a, there's a FGM house over here or there's terrorists over here. You investigate, it's always bullshit. It's always fake. Um, and it's usually because supply doesn't meet demand for the right. A lot of the time they really, really, really want terrorists and they really want all of this to exist and it, it's really blown out. Um, so we were very kind of a little bit skeptical, but we looked online and all the sources that were talking about it were identity of Europa, were American Renaissance, Jared Taylor, uh, all of this stuff. And we thought like, right... Um, so we, we looked into it and it seemed like there were farm murders happening and there were local news reports about it. And that was enough for us to to go. And I think for us, it was we really, really, really wanted people to. I mean, at the time, I was I was like very, very far right. So I I kind of had believed that for societies to be happy, I mean, Lauren believed this as well. Uh, it, they should be hom- homogenous, w- whatever race they are. They should be homogenous. For India to be happy, it needs to be predominantly Indians. For South Africa to be happy, it needs to be predominantly Africans. And for Britain to be predominantly uh, white British. So we felt like the angle would be we could show America and Europe what their countries would be like if they were not homogenous, if maybe black people were the majority or non-white people were the majority, the corruption that would go along with that, the fighting that would go along with that, the murder, the targets against white people. Also, 
Um, that's that was kind of the main thing, but also that the media were corrupt because they weren't talking about this horrible crimes that were happening against all of these people. And it just proves us right all along that the left-wing media are anti-white and they're covering this up. And by showing that they're covering it up and by showing that it's happening, you will sort of dismantle them and we'll sort of we'll, we'll show them up. So those are kind of the two points. And those are the, the main things that we focused on throughout. And obviously, if you, if you watch it over and over, you can see that the recurring themes really are about how, um, about how the media aren't talking about it, how the world doesn't care about these people. There's a scene where we go to a white squatter camp with, with children who have no money and they've been let down by the leaders, by, and they, they're not allowed to go to... Um, asylum centers or um, they're not allowed to go to anywhere that offers them support because they're white and it's all about putting black people first and it's to give the viewer this sense of unease that like if you're the minority in your country this is how you're going to be treated and it's kind of not too explicit because that would be too on the nose it'd probably be banned it would bang us all as sort of really really far right but I feel like that's that was underneath everything that was kind of one of the things that was really pulling it all together that we kind of wanted the world to wake up to and it wasn't so much a sinister thing at the time because this is what we genuinely believed and we genuinely wanted people to know we thought that the world should be a happy place without fighting and murder and and for that to exist it needs to be these these scenarios and these examples even if we have to pull and tug at the truth need to be known so i would say those are the those are the main uh, themes. What I find so interesting is talking to people who are on the right or who were on the right is how their kind of values and their mission is often quite similar to people who would describe themselves as left, where they're, you know, like you say, you were trying to reduce murder, you're trying to make the world a happier place. But then you're also kind of saying we were fudging the truth a little bit while we were doing that. Yeah. So I would, I would say that um, people on the far left, the very far extreme fringes, would probably pull and tug at the truth in similar ways to suit their agenda. They would. So, for example, in this country, we have an anti-Semitism crisis within the Labour Party that's now finally being fixed, where huge numbers of Jewish people left the Labour Party, which is our left-wing party in Britain, because there was rampant uh, um, anti-Jewish and really, really nasty anti-Israeli content. Um, that was being freely shared by like members of parliament and very far left fringe people in that party and also activists called them liars and twisted the truth about it. They said that the Jews who left who spoke out about it were like just shilling for Israel, all this horrible stuff. So I feel like the the, the far left and the far right are, are two sides to the same coin in the way that they both sort of behave like that. Although I would say now, given what happened with Christchurch, given what happened with the terrorism attacks towards the end of 2019 that led to me leaving, the far right's now a greater threat and it's something that should be combated with more vigour and more seriously. Um, but it was something that was kind of expected, I feel like, and it was something that was very, if you're on a crusade and if you're on a crusade with Laura and you feel like you need to save the world and you feel like you're doing the right thing, you, there was a concept of by any means necessary if we have to pull something and if we have to tug something that's 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 um that's collateral that's something that you have to do to 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 wake the world up and and to um and to bring people over to your side which at the time we felt was a side of truth it was a side of love it was protecting gay people from islam it was protecting women from islam it was protecting white people from discrimination if they become a minority it was reduced it was all of these things that we felt like were coming from a place of love but looking back were very where if implemented in the real world would be very very hateful very very destructive would lead to violence um we had questions and those were the wrong answers. And I feel like this is a, what a huge number of people online um, who become radicalized end up 
feeling is they have these questions which are quite legitimate at the beginning that the media might not really address, but they end up with totally the wrong answers. And that's where farmlands went down and that's where that direction went. So I want to get a bit more into kind of how you feel about the movie now and those things. But before we do that, could I ask a little bit about the kind of the position of South Africa in the global imagining? So I imagine I think about European far right people and people based in the US who are on the far right and how they South Africa, we, we seem to be this uh, kind of test case and as a, used often as an example for what happens if white people are a minority. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's um, because obviously the online right, whether that's Tim Pool, all the way up to Richard Spencer, to everyone in between, the conspiracy theorists, it's all part of the same sort of block. And I've worked with every single one of these people and their views basically are the same thing. And they're far more right behind the scenes as they are on camera or openly. So on camera, a lot of people might say, South, uh, the, the more moderate alt-light types might say, um, and love to bring up South Africa because they say it's a problem with the media. It's a problem with the media. The media aren't talking about it. The media are racist. The media uh, don't want to talk about it because it makes black people look bad. They don't even go as far as to say that it, it's because they're anti-white because even that's quite fringe. And then if you go to the further right, it's this is what's going to happen if you become a minority in your country. But it's always, always, always using South Africa as a sort of a, a petri dish example of where our countries are headed. It's very similar actually to how Sweden is used in the British far right and the American far right back in the same sort of time period. So back in 2016, there was lots of terror attacks that were happening in Malmo. There were these grenade attacks. There was sort of lots of terrorist attacks happening in, in the Netherlands. And it was very, very strange. And um, Britain on the far right always used to say, we always used to say at Rebel, don't fall as Sweden has fallen. Britain's nearly going to fall, but Sweden, Sweden is gone. Sweden is over. Sweden is finished. Everything you know about Sweden is done. Don't let us become like them. America would then look to Britain online far right as, as don't fall like we like Britain has fallen. Britain has become a Sharia country. Britain has had London Bridge, Westminster Bridge, Manchester Arena attacking London Bridge. It's had all of these terror attacks. Women are forced to wear hijabs all the time. Free speech doesn't exist. You get arrested if you have a butter knife. And it, it's using these kind of countries as these uh, scapegoats to say, don't fall as they have fallen. And South Africa entered the, the main stage of that in 2018, I assume because of this film, and blew the whole Britain narrative. It became the next Sweden, I would say, where it was like the worst case scenario. It's not just a couple of grenade attacks. It's not just a couple of this. It's this genocide against white people because of the color of their skin, because they're minority and because societies can only be happy and fair and successful and democratic if white people are the ones making the decisions in government at the top and they're the majority. If the roles are reversed and the whip is reversed, then, you know, and it, it goes back to like the 1960s speech by like Enoch Powell, you know, in 40 years, you know, the black man will have the whip over the white man. It's this fear of... Um, you understand. So that's 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 why South Africa became the main the main sort of center stage for 2018. And mix that with all the rhetoric about Sweden that happened, but also the production value with farmlands gave it such legitimacy, that argument such legitimacy that it was safe to talk about. It's not Jared Taylor, it's not Tommy Robinson, it looks like something you'd see on ABC News. So it was very, very, very effective, which is why it ended up on Tucker, which is why it ended up on so many different channels and ended up with the president tweeting about it because it was acceptable. It was also so much more extreme. Sweden on steroids, Britain and Sharia on steroids. It was, you know, people in their homes watching TV and then suddenly a bunch of black people come in and just shoot the house up and everyone gets killed. And it's like so visual. Um, 
yeah, that's why it became such an effective, huge, huge, huge part of the ecosystem. Not so much now we're in 2020. People have changed, you know, it's all about Trump, blah, 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 blah. But at the time, it, was, it had such a huge impact. It was like, it was, there was so much more energy. You know, Satelanders were dead when we went to South Africa. They were probably very big in the country, but in terms of America, they didn't know who the Satelanders were. Britain didn't know who the Satelanders were. None of the online knew who any of these people were. Afriform was very, very, very fringe, except from when Louis Theroux went and talked to them 100 years ago. So it was like... Um, Suddenly, uh, you had AfriForum getting tons of engagement and you had um, uh, Simon Roche going on Infowars and Alex Jones and Rebel Media and appearing on all these channels and it was getting loads and loads and loads of engagement. So it was also the ripple effect for all these kind of niche, kind of weird far-right groups in, in South Africa who were like way more racist than American Renaissance and any of these other groups started blowing up. Um, and for that year, they were just getting so much more attention. There was a lot of money flowing into South Africa from the right after that. There were a lot of people donating to him and donating to those groups. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. When you say that people are donating money, you mean internationally? Yeah, so I remember Alex Jones um, had him on a show a few times, and I was really good friends with Alex, and Alex would say that he could see in the background things were going across to him. So, so Simon received tons of money from... Uh, from going on the US audiences. Simon always used to tell us when we were in his car, when we were there, he was like, there's no money. No one can afford anything. No one can afford to donate. That's why I, we're so excited that you're here, Lauren, from North America, not because you're here to tell the truth. And this is not something he said. This is what I know he meant, but because it meant cash and it meant that we could, you know, make more money. I mean, that's how it is. I mean, when I was working with Tommy in the UK, we didn't really make much money when we started. He wasn't very well known. He only blew up after we started making high production videos with him but the average donation was about four or five pounds from britain but when we went on infowars when we went on rebel when we went in in the us it went to like 15 16 pounds so it was like so much more per head um so that was really it would have been the same thing for satelanders it would have been the same for those people um and, and there was like thousands of comments as well on the video of people being like how do i donate to this group how do i donate to help this how do i donate to your guide so there was a big rush um at the time and looking back on the movie and that whole process, how do you feel about it now? It's difficult because the stories of Janine and of the victims of this and of Louis, who lost all of his stuff on the farm because of genuine government corruption, the families who live in fear, are totally real. Those aren't manip manipulated in any way except for a little bit of sad music over the top. And those people have been completely broken by it. Uh, by by living in a country with a higher crime rate than maybe Britain or other countries that have rates of poverty that are higher that where where these issues just exist and it's really um, it's really really sad because I still believe that what happened to them is terrible but what happens to almost everyone in South Africa is terrible of every race because it's 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 becoming because of the poverty and because of the, the corruption in the government that's always existed, the South African government before the ANC was run by like apartheid and all these people. So it's always, it's always had problems from the top down. And um, it's something that, that um, is quite hard to grapple with. But obviously the thing that makes me feel unproud of it and the thing that makes me sort of sad to think about it and not be able to like smile when I think of it is obviously talking about the genocide at the end. That's a lie. Saying that there is no, saying that there was a white genocide coming in South Africa is something that all three of us knew wasn't true, but we said to appease the right because you have to tick all the boxes, and it's just like it really blows the whole thing apart. And to sort of use the tactics that were involved to sort of 
place it as a black against white issue is disingenuous. At the beginning, the history section focuses on a very, very, very niche story where a black trader like fights off and murders and betrays a group of white traders and talks about that more disparagingly than the entire apartheid system. So there are so many parts of it that are disingenuous and so many parts that are one-sided, far more than any kind of left-wing media, you know, bias that has ever existed, that make it impossible to be proud of. But um, it's just very hard because me saying that, if any right-winger hears me say that, they'll say, well, those people lost everything and she had her husband shot. And it's like, you can't have a rational conversation anymore about any of this because the right just says, you're denying that white people are being killed and you're a horrible person. And then it's, it's impossible to get, to get through to these people. And it's because everything's become so much more polarized. But yeah, it's a shame because it has had a huge, huge, huge impact in in... in in South Africa, I feel like it hasn't changed public opinion, but it has confirmed bias that has existed forever in a massive way. I mean, my friend Liz, who's, who features in the documentary, who I still speak to, who I knew years before, it, before we filmed it, um, said she gets stopped in a shopping mall weekly by people, by white South Africans saying, are you from farmlands? Oh my God. Like, I can't believe you're here. Like, what was it like to film it? So... And and it got like 400,000, I can't remember how many views it got on YouTube, but a significant number of YouTube specifically from South Africa. Like basically every white person in South Africa. Um, I think if you calculate the number. Um, and and also like six or seven million views per video on, on, on Facebook. So it had a huge impact. And I think that makes it even more difficult to come to terms with because it wasn't something, wasn't something that I was wrong about, that I was personally wrong about, that then I then and went and... Uh, and figured out was wrong and then went on with it. It's something that I was wrong about that then harmed a bunch of stuff that then made things worse and added fuel to the fire of an already difficult situation. Yeah, so it's very stressful. It's very difficult. It sounds like you knew while you were making it, like you mentioned this thing. So the film, just quickly for the listeners, I'll summarise, the film starts with a, a history of white settlers arriving in South Africa and then, as you mentioned, does does quite a, a one-sided summary of, of white uh, experiences in South Africa around black people attacking them and then apartheid and then cuts to the new South Africa and the new dispensation. And then you have a whole series of these clips of people who have really tragic stories of their family members being shot and they've lost everything and people who've gone bankrupt and their farms have collapsed and all of that. And then you kind of end with this this thing that there is a white genocide coming. And it sounds like what you're saying is that even while you were making that ending scene that really emotive ending scene you kind of knew that 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 wasn't true yeah um the the one thing that the the far right and also the sort of the middle ground right would talk about before this became a center stage issue was always the genocide thing it was always this very obscure fake professor i don't know who the hell it was who said who designed this scale of what a genocide really was and it was this stage and this stage and this stage and South Africa was stage seven. And I had done lots of research when I was editing South Africa, um, editing the, the, the documentary and found that that had actually been disproven and that him linking it to South Africa was totally disingenuous. And actually the farm murders were on the, were on the decline in terms of actual tangible numbers, even though crime was going up generally. Um, the farm murders would be treated with far more media and police uh, vigor and significance than it's just a black person was killed in the same town and so actually it's it was, it was when we were 
physically looking at the footage, it's something that we realised we were wrong about when we were on the ground. Because we were narrated with the story of South Africa from Saitlanders and from very, very, very far-right people on the ground. So we genuinely believed that stuff, but it wasn't until the final ending. So when we flew to Toronto to film Lauren talking and doing the final summary, we had all known that at that point. And it was kind of like a bit of a cowardly thing. I guess it was to appease the right or to continue this kind of crusade of saying like, no, 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 it maybe, maybe really, really, really could be, maybe to be climactic. It was something that we kind of thought about and um, I feel bad for putting it in. And it really, like, was the nail in the coffin for that documentary because it was it, it, it had the potential to do some, something good. It had the potential to look at this and say, terrible things are happening to lots of people and it's because of elite corruption and it's because of poverty and it's because of a society that might have cracks and be breaking down which is legitimate and it could have gone in that direction and still been successful, but it just steered off to the right. Like so much content that we made, that so much content and so many of the people we worked with ended up doing. And, um, and it was just a shame because it really cemented the idea that it was not a, not a great thing. And it's really hard because me saying that, I'll be throwing the criticisms of, well, you're just a grifter and you're probably being paid a hundred million rand for this interview and you're, you're denying this all horrible stuff. And it's like, no, multiple things can be true at once. Terrible things happen to people, that can be true. But this summary at the end can be totally untrue and there can be manipulative sides to it all. And it's just very, very, very frustrating. Um, and I wish, yeah, I wish the people watching it wouldn't be, uh, I, I don't know, I wish they hadn't watched it. I mean, I moved to a village in the middle of nowhere in 2019 and there were neighbours who were, who were South African who had met me and I'd invited one round f to look at a yard sale that I was doing. He saw the Farmland's DVD. This was six months ago. And he was like, um, oh my God, you made, like, what is this? How do you have this in your garage? And I was like, oh, I directed it. And he was like, oh, it's the best film we've ever seen. My wife and I. And that happened loads of times in London to South Africans that I met. And I was like, it's just really, really, really annoying because it's like if they had any kind of racial bias or any kind of bias about what was behind all of these things already in their mind from dinner party conversations or friends, that really solidified it, which is super unhelpful. Very frustrating. It must be quite a thing to sit with that, to know that you've made this film that's done really well and to look back and go, I don't know if I agree with how I made that film. For so long, I felt that Lauren would leave the far right like I did. Behind the scenes, in a lot of ways, she went through the same de-radicalization process that I did when we were traveling through Turkey and through South Africa, not through South Africa, sorry, through Turkey and Morocco. And then um, we realized that a lot of the people that we were demonizing turned out to be like completely normal refugee, you know, refugees, women and children. And so we went through that de-radicalization process and we were wrong about so many things. She was... Uh, treated rudely and like aggressively by like, you know, right wing men like Gavin McGuinness and things like that. And she was like, wow, men, you know, these, these white heads of the movement turn out to be I was wrong about that. And so she kind of went through that process as well. And I, I, I kind of held on to the, the idea that she would go and make another one or go and talk about it and talk directly to the people that were radicalized and solidified with it and say, look, it was something that I made at a time where we were on this crusade and the answers weren't the right answers. But it's okay that you have those questions and the answers are out there. They're just not as black and white and clean and boring and simple as we gave you. They are actually much more complicated and much more complex and much with much more dynamics. And if you look out there, you know, we can research it. And I kind of felt like that would happen, but it doesn't seem to have happened. So I was kind of holding on to that. And now that I'm doing other work that is on the left, 
and work that is um, undoing a lot of the stuff I've done by making content for, you know, um, genuinely good, from a genuinely good perspective, I feel like I, I'm undoing some of that damage and actively like making things better. So it sits with me more easily because I feel like I'm actively, you know, spending my time undoing it. And talking about it now, I mean, talking about it now helps because I'm not some presenter from ABC News saying, you know, oh, this is wrong because I'm left wing and I don't agree with Lauren because she's right wing. I'm the person that directed it. And I, and I, and if I say that some of it was disingenuous, surely that means something. And I think if anyone's listening to this who have watched it and who was solidified by it, that would probably convince them more than any other figure criticizing it from any other perspective. You know, they can't say, well, you're just an elite, you know, you're just a lefty, you know. It's like, you made it. So, yeah, hopefully that will help. Thank you so much. So we have been chatting with Kalen Robertson today. He was a, well, still is a film producer, a documentary filmmaker who made Farmlands, a very well-publicized and watched movie about the white genocide and has in some ways changed his views on a lot of those issues. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kalen, and we will be chatting again next week. Thanks so much for having me.